You are listening to a download from Yale University Press. For more information, go to the website www.yalebooks.com. Hello, and welcome to episode four of the Yale Press podcast, the podcast of Yale University Press. My name is Chris Gondek, and I'm the host of the show. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Hugh Brogan about the life of Alexis de Tocqueville. I'm, by instinct and training and upbringing and everything else, a historian. Uh, the French Revolution is a fascinating subject, and Tocqueville is one of the great writers about the French Revolution. He's also one of the great writers about the United States, another important and interesting topic. And his mind, his personality, and his rather adventurous life uh, kept me interested. Heather Cox Richardson about the reconstruction of America after the Civil War. You know, it's funny how many incarnations, introductions, and conclusions go through. I believe the introduction of this book starts with the 2004 election, and somebody sending me a map of that just as I was uh, was working on this manuscript, saying, oh, this is, we're still fighting about slavery, we're still fighting about the Civil War. And I looked at that map and, and literally was shocked and said, no, 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 this is not about the Civil War, this is about Reconstruction. Dr. Alan Dwight Callahan on the relationship between African Americans and the Bible. In the 11th hour, he, could, he had an opportunity to admit the error of his ways, perhaps recant. Um, and he didn't. He, he said, no, no, it doesn't, you know, his, his response was it wasn't, uh, that the failure of the, the, the revolt wasn't uh, a sign of, uh, uh, that he had been mistaken at all. Uh, and he summed this up in, in, in a one-sentence response, a uh, uh, rhetorical question, wasn't Jesus crucified? And Norton Garfinkel about the political and moral implications of American economic policy. Now, um, the uh, Bush, in his six years so far in office, has achieved above-average growth, despite all of his tax cuts, uh, uh, of uh, only one year. And the current forecast for most economists and for The Economist magazine, which is a conservative publication, um, is that uh, in his last two years he will also uh, fail to um, create above-average GDP growth. Stay tuned. In 1830, two young Frenchmen, Alexis de Tocqueville and Gustave de Beaumont, traveled to the United States and toured the young country. They both wrote books, and Tocqueville's Democracy in America is still regarded by many as the best book about America ever written. In Alexis de Tocqueville, A Life, Hugh Brogan of the University of Essex has written what The Economist has called a splendid new biography, a biography that made The Economist UK's list of the top 100 books of 2006. Professor Hugh Brogan, thank you so much for being on the Yale Press podcast today. In your acknowledgments, you mentioned that you started this biography of Alexis de Tocqueville in 1963. What was it about his life that kept you interested for over 40 years? <laughs> oh dear. Um, that's a very difficult question because uh, I've never thought about it before. I was I never stopped being interested in Tocqueville because he's an interesting person, I think, is the uh, first thing to say. I'm, by instinct and training and upbringing and everything else, a historian. Uh, the French Revolution is a fascinating subject, and Tocqueville is one of the great writers about the French Revolution. He's also one of the great writers about the United States, another important and interesting topic. And 
his mind, his personality, and his rather adventurous life uh, kept me interested. Uh, it would be very strange if I'd ever... I think I could only have stopped being interested in Tocqueville if I'd come to disagree too totally with his politics, but uh, that never happened. So uh, I, I kept going with him for 40 years. Would you give listeners a sense of what Tocqueville was like as a person, his appearance, his manners, and things like that? He was not tall. He was about five and a half feet, five foot six inches, uh, something like that. He um, he often referred to himself as a little fellow, like Charlie Chaplin. He had thick, uh, dark hair and rather beautiful, large, dark eyes. Uh, they were beautiful the way people's eyes are beautiful. They're extremely short-sighted, and he was. Uh, he had very delicate features. He was a... He wasn't a dandy, but uh, it's clear that he dressed very well and uh, was always a gentleman in his turnout behavior. Uh, he was a bit of a sportsman in the old French sense, aristocratic sense. He swam, he shot, he hunted. Um, and he seems to have had a, a rather fine voice, but there's only one reference to that. And, well, that's uh, all I can say offhand about him uh, in appearance. You begin the book in, cha in the first chapter stating that the French Revolution was the most important event in Tocqueville's life, even though it occurred before his birth. What did you mean by that? Well, simply that, well, two things. In the first place, the French Revolution transformed French society and meant that Tocqueville, whose family was extremely aristocratic uh, and who would normally have been part by birth of the ruling class, uh, suddenly found that he had to earn his place in society, uh, not quite to say as earn his living, he was quite well off, but uh, he'd, he'd become, uh, it had become a democratic society, and he was an aristocrat, and all through his life he was trying to uh, make sense of this really profound change. And secondly, all, all, all sorts of uh, smaller ways uh, the French Revolution determined his life. For example, he had comparative democratic ideas about marriage, uh, and he married an English woman who was not very definitely not aristocratic. And when he first got to know her, she was a Protestant, she converted to Catholicism, and she wasn't very rich. In fact, she was extremely unsuitable, uh, but Tocqueville loved her. It was a romantic marriage. She was a very intelligent woman, and she made him a very good wife. Uh, but that sort of thing simply wasn't allowed to occur in the uh, before the French Revolution. It was a very hierarchical, rigid society. And so you might say that Tocqueville's political views, which were very important to him, his way of life, his tastes, uh, were all determined by huge events of the French Revolution, uh, which, as you right to say, happened 10 years before he was born. So Tocqueville is best known in the United States for his book, Democracy in America. Do we know why he decided to visit the United States? He says somewhere that he's always been interested in the United States and want, wanted to visit it. And I think that's probably true. He loved travel. Uh, but also, the, he saw well enough that as a result of the French Revolution, French society and French government, above all, would have to change quite radically. And it didn't show any signs of doing so intelligently. Uh, and in 1830, there was a revolution, another revolution, the July Revolution, which overthrew the restored French monarchy. And 
it was replaced by yet another monarchy, uh, which Tocqueville uh, felt very little loyalty to, and he felt it didn't go far enough. And he felt that although democracy was coming to France, it wasn't coming in a very uh, safe and sensible way. So he thought he'd go to the United States, which was the only really modern uh, republic and democracy in the world at that date. Uh, and he would go there to find out how democracy worked and what lessons, if any, the United States contained for France. And that is the great theme of democracy in America, uh, the book which made him famous. Alexis de Tocqueville, A Life, can be found at booksellers everywhere. To hear an extended interview with Hugh Brogan, go to www.yalebooks.com podcast. After Robert E. Lee's surrender in 1865, the American government began the process of Reconstruction. In her new book, West from Appomattox, The Reconstruction of America After the Civil War, historian Heather Cox Richardson discusses how a new American identity was forged during this time and how the American cowboy became the enduring symbol of the country. Heather Cox Richardson is an associate professor of history at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Heather Cox Richardson, thank you so much for being on the Yale Press podcast today. Thanks for having me, Chris. Now, this is the third book you've written about this period of time, uh, the time between uh, post-Civil War, really up until the turn of the century. How does this book, Western Mathematics, relate to the first two books you wrote? I think in a way they all three explore the same question, and that's a question of how you can have people who fought so passionately a war for the abolition of slavery end up being the robber barons that we came to know uh, in the late 19th century, and I really didn't understand how that had happened. I was also very frustrated by how boring I thought so many of the books that cover this period were, and I wanted to write a history that I wanted to read. So my first book looks at what the Republicans during the war really were trying to accomplish, and from that I took the idea that they were trying to create a new kind of world, a new kind of America that in fact did improve the standard of living for everybody. The second book looked at why that fell apart, what made them abandon African Americans and decide that they weren't worth bringing into American society. And this book is an attempt to correct the mistakes I thought I made in the last one, where I thought I had focused much too much on the issues of racism and sectionalism, because the more work I did for that book, the more I saw issues of women and issues of the West everywhere. And it sort of hit me like lightning that really the image we know best from the post-war period is the image of the American cowboy. And any history of that period that doesn't deal with that is probably not getting the whole story. You write about how the American West and the image of the cowboy became the American ideal, the sense that people could go out in the West, that God had provided this great land where they could go and use the fruits of their labors to develop themselves. And to that end, Westerners didn't like government. But what was the actual nature of the West relationship with the federal government? The actual nature of the relationship of the West federal government is fascinating. Uh, it's covered really well in a book, Richard White, a seminal book Richard White wrote um, about a decade ago now called It's Your Misfortune and None of My Own. But the, the simple answer to that is think about settlement in the American East. It moves along slowly as, or as settlers move out and start new towns, and it moves pretty self-directed. People move on their own. Then it gets to the Mississippi River and a little bit over it, and it, it abruptly stops. It jumps over to California either with the, into the West Coast, either with the wagon trains or by boat, and nobody settles the plains, or uh, there are few fur traders in the Rockies and the Sierras. 
some, somehow that part of the country gets settled, but it gets settled in a very different way than the East Coast does. That part of the country is really the brainchild of the American government. It's the government during the Civil War that says, by God, we've got to settle that region. And it, has, it wants to settle that region for a couple of reasons. First, it wants to put a, a road across to California because it's terrified that California, with its gold reserves, is going to break off from the Union. If it does that, the Union Treasury is in terrible trouble. It also wants to do it because it's determined to get farmers out into that middle part of the country. And the reason for that is, again, because of the growth of the federal government. What you didn't mention there was that one of the major things that it did is it created national taxes for the first time in American history. And if you're going to have national taxes, you better have somebody to pay them, and you better have somebody making money to pay them. So they want to settle farmers on that land as quickly as they can in order to create more and more taxpayers. So the federal government first gets people out there through the railroads, then they offer the Homestead Act to actually give people land to go out and farm. But before you can get people out there farming, you've got to have land surveyors out there. You've got to have people out there exploring the West to see where people might be able to live. Then as soon as you get a white explorers out there, you of course run into trouble with the Indians who have no intention of letting these interlopers come across, and these are terrifically powerful Indians, very, very good fighters. So the next thing, you've got the U.S. Army out there. None of these things could have happened. None of the West could have been settled if the U.S. government hadn't said, we need to settle it, and we need to settle it now. And they do that immediately after the Civil War. So while there is this image in America, in American culture, but also at the time of the independent Westerner who owes nothing to the government, in reality, they would never have been there without the, the federal government. So how did that image develop if the government was so instrumental in developing the West? How do we get this image of the lone American out there doing it all on his or her own? The cowboys themselves are largely ex-Confederates. One-third of them are men of color, either black or Mexicans. We don't see that a lot in movies, but that's the way it was. And they are men who don't have anything except a horse and a gun and who are willing to work in terrible conditions for very little pay. They get a romantic image fairly quickly, and they get that romantic image over a series of steps. But the, most, the reason that they take such, get such incredible power in American culture is because they, as Southerners largely, after the Civil War, moving up through the plains as the railheads move, uh, move both further west and further north, they become a counterpoint to the growing Republican government in the East and on the West Coast because, of course, the Republicans control America immediately after, during and immediately after the Civil War. They are the party of the Union. They, there are Democrats around, but it's really the Republicans who run things, certainly while Johnson is messing around with Reconstruction. And people who don't like that, who don't like the Republicans being in charge, former Democrats or Democrats, Southerners, any number of people who are angry about the way their tax dollars are being used start to develop an idea of the anti-government figure, if you will, and the anti-government figure very quickly becomes the cowboy. And what you're saying is that at this point you had the South and large chunks of the West that uh, were not liking the government very much, and then you had a situation on the East and West Coast in which the government was seen uh, somewhat more benignly. That sounds awful, an awful lot like the way the political, uh, the, the way that the map came out in the 2004 election. It does. And in fact, I think, um, you know, it's funny how many incarnations, introductions, and conclusions go through. I believe the introduction of this book starts with the 2004 election, and somebody sending me a map of that just as I was, uh, was 
working on this manuscript saying, oh, this is, we're still fighting about slavery, we're still fighting about the Civil War. And I looked at that map and, and literally was shocked and said, no, 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 this is not about the Civil War, this is about Reconstruction. And it's the exact same pattern and the exact same language, I would add, that you get uh, in the present. We already dealt with once in the 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s, uh, same themes, the same cultural symbols, and the same political rhetoric. Western Mathematics, The Reconstruction of America After the Civil War, is on sale now. To hear an extended interview with Heather Cox Richardson, go to www.yalebooks.com podcast. What has been the effect of the Bible on African-American culture from the antebellum period to the present? In his new book, The Talking Book, African-Americans and the Bible, Dr. Alan Dwight Callahan discusses four biblical themes that have had the most significance to African-Americans. Booklist calls The Talking Book a powerful look at the intersection of religion and African-American culture. Dr. Callahan is professor of New Testament at the Seminario Teologico Batista de Nordeste in Baja, Brazil. Dr. Alan Dwight Callahan, thank you so much for being on the Yale Press podcast today. Thank you. Would you explain the title of The Talking Book? Well, the... Uh the title is taken from um, an observation uh, by uh, Henry Louis Gates, uh, who uh, was the literary critic at, uh, uh, and the head of Athel Am at uh, Harvard um, University. He observed that in the 19th century, the tail end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, several African Americans who uh, encountered printed texts. Uh, the, the printed text of the Bible um, did so um, as illiterate. And uh, he, he noted that there were a, a half dozen occasions in autobiographical accounts of African Americans who, who had the following experience, just to, to summarize it. They would hear someone reading from the Bible, usually someone from the master class, reading from the Bible. The person would then close the Bible and go away. Uh, the African-American who was, who was a slave, uh, usually a slave, would then um, later uh, get hold of the book, go back surreptitiously to the place where, where the reading took place, and hold the book to his ear in an attempt to hear the book taught. So the, the, so the understanding, was a very oral understanding of what was going on in the reading process. Uh, and uh, Professor Gates referred to this as the, the phenomenon of the talking book. It is that African-Americans, illiterate African-Americans, expected the book to talk to them, to them in a certain way and were frustrated in their efforts to, uh, to, to hear the book, uh, as it were. So I thought it was a, an, an evocative title. It's also um, ironic because, of course, a, a book doesn't talk. And... Uh, uh, this suggests, uh, suggests another controversy, uh, a, a perennial controversy about the Bible, and that is that uh, the Bible doesn't actually say anything. It's people come to the Bible and interpret the Bible, and the Bible, quote, quote, speaks to them through their interpretations of what it, quote, says. You wrote in the book that historically African Americans have been more engaged with what Jesus said, did, and suffered than what had been said about him in the creeds. Could you explain what you meant by that? The creedal statements, the historic uh, creedal statements, the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, etc., haven't been as important for African Americans as those biblical narratives, 
um, about Jesus and the, the biblical sayings of Jesus. So the propositional statements uh, that were so carefully worked out and, and um, torturously worked out um, in the late 4th century, early 5th century, and, and, and thereafter, and the, um, in the historic um, Christian communions weren't such a big deal for African Americans. In, in a way, they, they, on the one hand, they said too much about Jesus, making certain propositional statements, ontological statements about you know, Jesus' substance and essence, his relation to the Father, his, his, the, the economy of the Holy Trinity, that kind of thing. Um, on the other hand, not saying enough about what African Americans really wanted to hear about which was about uh, Jesus as someone who was like them, rejected like them, suffered like them. And um, in, in his resurrection, uh, they see the hope of their own uh, resurrection and vindication. They fixed upon that. So that, that um, made them um, especially interested in the, 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 the gospel narratives. And historically speaking, just in, in, in general, more or less disinterested in so that question about the actual facts of Jesus' life, that's played out several times in African-American political movements. Could you talk about how Jesus' life has been interpreted by those movements in the last 200 years? Well, um, in, in different ways. When, um, when Nat Turner, who led the, the famous uh, uh, slave revolt in, in, uh, in 1831, uh, when Nat Turner was arrested finally, uh, of course he was condemned to death. And uh, as he was on death row, he was questioned about what he did. He was the, the ringleader for this, this uprising, and it failed. And it wasn't the failure of the uprising a sign that he had made a mistake. He hadn't even been in error. Um, and it was his, you know, he had a, in the 11th hour, he, could, he had the opportunity to admit the error of his ways, perhaps recant. Um, and he didn't. He said, "No, no, it doesn't." You know, his his response was, "It wasn't uh, that the failure of the the, the revolt wasn't um, a sign of uh, uh, that he had been mistaken at all." Uh, and he summed this up in in, in a one sentence response, um, a rhetorical question: um, "Wasn't Jesus crucified?" That is, that the, the movement isn't measured on the basis of its success. Uh, Nat Turner saw himself as someone who was heeding the call of Jesus and spoke of uh, visions of Jesus, um, spoke in the words of Jesus, uh, saw the necessity for conflict of good against evil, violent conflict of good against evil, saw that, uh, saw that necessity uh, articulated in the words of Jesus. And so um, even as a failed movement, the, the victory of Jesus sort of vindicates failure, as it were, for, for uh, vindicated failure for, uh, for Nat Turner. Um, uh, moving all the way to the, to the present, more familiar historical territory with, with Martin Luther King, uh, here, again, the words of Jesus, the preaching of Jesus, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, were, um, uh, were, were central for King. Uh, that's how he articulated his argument for nonviolence. Uh, interestingly enough, Gandhi had done this before, but you know, King was fond of saying that that um, uh, that uh, Jesus uh, uh, provided um, the, uh, the the 
vision um, for nonviolence and, and showed, uh, sort of revealed um, the, the, uh, uh, the divine imperative of nonviolence. But Gandhi provided the method. <laughs> so the, uh, both, both, uh, Jesus, both um, King and Gandhi, however, returned again and again to Jesus' words of the Sermon on the Mount as their, their primary arguments for nonviolence, or for, for non-resistance, non-retaliation, to turn the other cheek, um, to love those who hate you, uh, to pray for those who persecute you. And these are the words that sustained um, the, uh, the civil rights activists in the very dark days of the movement when they were experiencing um, that persecution and hatred of which Jesus had spoken. The talking book, African Americans in the Bible, is on sale now at both real and virtual booksellers everywhere. To hear an extended interview with Dr. Alan Dwight Callahan, go to www.yalebooks.com slash podcast. Where should tax cuts be targeted? To lower or middle income consumers or upper income investors? In The American Dream versus the Gospel of Wealth, the fight for a productive middle class economy. Norton Garfinkel examines the respective claims of demand and supply side economic advocates to discover which set of policies is better. Norton Garfinkel is chairman of the Future of American Democracy Foundation and the senior editor of Yale University Press's The Future of American Democracy book series. Norton Garfinkel, thank you so much for being on the Yale Press podcast today. My pleasure. I'm delighted to be here. This book, uh, The American Dream versus the Gospel of Wealth, The Fight for a Productive Middle-Class Economy, is part of the Yale University Press's Future of American Democracy series. Now, you are the series editor, so I guess you'd be the person to ask, what's the goal of this series of books? Well, we understand that democracy as a nation is our most important asset, and sustaining and expanding our democracy is our most important task as a nation. Uh, This series of books looks at the status of our democracy today and at the new challenges that confront our democracy today in an effort to help us understand the challenges and points away to solutions. Well, the full title of the book, as I mentioned, is The American Dream versus the Gospel of Wealth, The Fight for a Productive Middle-Class Economy, which lends me to the question is, who are the combatants in this fight, and why are they in conflict over the issue of a productive middle-class economy? Uh, well, let, let's talk about, the, uh, for starters, the essential ideas behind the two um, uh, uh, approaches, the American Dream and the Gospel of Wealth. The proponents of the American dream believe that people who work hard and play by the rules should be able to achieve a solid middle-class life. They also believe that government plays an important role in helping Americans to achieve this goal. And they believe that the engine of economic growth can best be sustained by a progressive tax system that supports the purchasing power of middle-class Americans. Now, on the other side of the proponents of the gospel of wealth, They believe that wealthy Americans provide the motive power of economic prosperity. They believe that government is the problem, not the solution, and that a winner-take-all economy is the best we can get. And the proponents of the gospel wealth believe that the engine of economic growth can best be sustained by a regressive tax system that increases the wealth of the highest-income families. So th- those 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 are the, the the two sides. Now, as you listen to uh, our political debates, and you listen to positions asserted by um, p- 
politicians, uh, you can you can see the elements of these two quite opposite uh, points of view. Now they both have a tendency. To, uh, both sides have a tendency to talk uh, about things like the middle class uh, and to obscure the, the the sharp division. But you have to look behind it and. and Looking behind their words and their deeds, you can see who's on one side and who's on the other. And the important thing is that this this is an historic debate in our society. It gets um, uh, people try to muddle it over, but it goes back as far as Abraham Lincoln uh, and Lincoln's day and the late 19th century, the year of the era of the robber barons, uh, and on and on. Um, Lincoln was the father of what I call the American Dream idea. Uh, and he was followed by other presidents, by Teddy Roosevelt, uh, and then by um, uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson, and then um, Franklin Roosevelt, and in our most recent time, uh, by Bill Clinton. Uh, on the other side, we have uh, the invention of the gospel of wealth in the late 19th century uh, by, by the people uh, who were the wealthiest um, segment of our society, and it was picked up in the 1920s by Presidents Harding, Coolidge, Hoover, and more recently by Presidents Reagan and George W. Bush. As you mentioned early on in the book, actually for a large chunk of the book, you do the historical analysis of how these two ideas, the American Dream and the Gospel of Wealth, have, have developed. And when we get to the 1980s, uh, talking about Ronald Reagan, the, uh, the Gospel of Wealth changes to the term supply-side economics, which is what a lot of people may know it today. You take a long look at the claims that supply side advocates uh, use, and they get a pretty thorough examination of your book. What conclusions did you come to? Well, the, the important thing is um, when I address this issue, I start by saying, let's look at the facts. Uh, it's important, you know, the, you, you can't um, resolve this debate with theoretical statements. Um, you have to say, well, what really happens when you try to take one approach uh, versus the other. And a good part of the book um, addresses that because it hasn't been addressed. Um, uh, uh, economic analysis these days tends to be theoretical rather than uh, based on the facts. But let's look at some of the facts. Um, the, um, the current administration, the George W. Bush administration, uh, claims that their radical plan for tax cuts uh, oriented to the wealthy was necessary and desirable because it would build a strong economy. Now, there are several measures the, the, of, of what is truly a strong economy. Uh, the most um, uh, obvious measure that people use is the, the gross domestic product, the GDP, uh, and that measures the totality of output of the whole economy. Uh, the average, taking the 50-year period uh, from 1951, actually the 55-year period from 1951 uh, through today, through the 2006, uh, if we if we look at um, at the growth of GDP, the average is 3.4 percent every year, the annual average. Now, um, the uh, Bush, in his six years so far in office has achieved above-average growth, despite all of his tax cuts, uh, uh, of uh, only one year. And the current forecast for most economists and for The Economist magazine, which is a conservative publication, um, is that uh, in his last two years he will also 
uh, fail to um, create above-average GDP growth. Uh, so the factual data do not support the Bush contention that his um, radical program of tax cuts for the rich, which included um, reducing the marginal tax rate, reducing the estate tax level, um, reducing taxes on, um, uh, on capital gains, reducing taxes uh, on um, uh, dividends paid, um, none of these have paid out in the form of above-average economic growth. And he will probably leave office with only <clears throat> one or at most two years out of eight of above-average growth. Now, by contrast, the Clinton administration was not that long ago, and the world hasn't changed radically since then. And in Clinton's case, above-average growth was achieved in six out of eight years. So one out of eight versus six out of eight. It doesn't seem as if, and, and the, irony, the irony of it is that the Clinton growth occurred after he raised the marginal tax rate from 131% to 39.6%. So in our recent history, there's no evidence to support the supply side um, uh, concept. In, indeed, uh, George Herbert Walker's Bush's description of it as voodoo economics uh, probably has a greater uh, uh, validity than any other term for it. The American Dream versus the Gospel of Wealth, the fight for a productive middle-class economy, is on sale now at booksellers everywhere. To hear an extended interview with Norton Garfinkel, go to www.yalebooks.com podcast. And that's the end of this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. Currently, Yale University Press is having a half-off sale on selected titles. To get in on these great deals, just go to www.yalebooks.com, click on the half-off sale banner, and look for that 50% off book of your dreams. For more information about the show or to subscribe to the feed, go to any podcast aggregator such as iTunes, Odeo, or any number of sites. Or go to the Yale Press website, www.yalebooks.com podcast, and look for the subscription button on the podcast page. You'll also find the show notes on the Yale Press blog. My name is Chris Gondek, and if you have any questions or comments about the show, feel free to drop me a line at yup.email.news at yale.edu. And now for a bit of sad news. The Yale Press podcast is putting the Ask an Author segment on hiatus. Uh, the response to this segment has been uh, disappointing. <laughs> so I may have to start making some glaring omissions in my interviews in order to stir up interest. But for the time being, I'm afraid Ask the Author is being sent off the pitch. And that's it for this episode of the Yale Press podcast. It was engineered by Stephen Cray. Dan Lee of Yale University Press is the executive producer. My name is Chris Gondek, and I'm the producer and host of the show. So long until next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. The Yale Press Podcast is a production of Heron and Crane. For more information about the show, go to www.yalebooks.com or www.heronandcrane.com.